This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week we are in conversation with Nell Edgington. Uh, now, Nell is the president of Social Velocity, which is a US-based uh, consulting firm that works with non-profits and foundation leaders uh, to become more effective and sustainable at creating social change. Uh, and most relevantly for the conversation you're about to hear, she's uh, just published a new book called Reinventing Social Change, uh, Embrace Abundance to Create a Healthier and More Equitable World. So I sat down with Nell to uh, talk to her about the book, to find out kind of what it was that had driven her to, to write it and, and what the sort of central thesis is and what she wants people to do off the back of the book. We talked about why um, the, the idea of a scarcity mindset affects so many donors and funders and why this is a particular problem and how we can try and shift from that scarcity mindset to more of an abundance mindset. Um, linked to that we talked quite a bit about uh, things like the overhead myth so the idea that donors sort of focus on things like the amount that is perceived to be spent on overheads or administration and why that's so problematic we talked quite a bit about what's been going on during the pandemic and the the signs of changes in funding practice the shift from uh, unrest- from restricted funding to unrestricted funding and trust-based grant making and, and longer term uh, grant funding cycles uh, and tried to think through whether some of that would uh, lead to longer term changes. Um, we talked about some of the interesting stuff Nell uh, talks about in the book about misconceptions over what makes for sustainable non-profits and, and why people have those misconceptions. We talked about the idea of failure in philanthropy and kind of whether we need to redefine what constitutes success and failure um, in the minds of grant makers and philanthropists and we talked uh, a bit about how we should think about philanthropy's response to the current pandemic crisis um, and kind of whether we you know on balance after the event that will be seen as as being largely a kind of positive response or whether it will be seen to have not done enough Um, and then we talked about um, what you know what the sort of fundamental point of philanthropy is within society and kind of how it can play a role taking risks and drive society forward and and what's needed in terms of our approaches to philanthropy to make that happen and so without further ado let's go into the conversation i'll be back at the end for the usual little bit of housekeeping and tidying up Okay, great. Uh, So I'm here with Nell Edgington. Hi, Nell. Hi, Rodri. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, And Nell is the president of uh, Social Velocity uh, and more pertinently for this conversation we're having today, author of a new book called Reinventing Social Change, Embrace Abundance to Create a Healthier and More Equitable World. Um, So it's great to have you on the podcast, uh, Nell. Um, And maybe the the best place to start um, is for you to say a bit about the book, uh, kind of what it's about, uh, what made you write it, and and what you hope people get out of reading it. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So Reinventing Social Change is a, a book I wrote because I think we are, as a world, at a really critical juncture. The pandemic has uncovered many broken systems, um, 
inequitable um, wealth inequity, um, our education systems are really struggling, healthcare, et cetera. And we're at a unique moment where what I believe is a great reset where we can fundamentally address those broken systems and really reinvent them. And that work falls largely to the social change sector, the sector that the nonprofit philanthropic sector that is about creating social good. And so my book charts a path for a sector that I think is itself broken. It suffers from um, many restrictive norms, regulations, just uh, a lot of, of history and baggage that holds true social change back. And so my book, I hope, will chart a path for social change leaders to reclaim their power, to attract all the money, resources, people, influence they need to truly create a more equitable and healthier world. And yeah, I'd, I'd like to dig into to what some of those barriers you identify are. I know a, kind of a big theme of the book is that um, the the nonprofit sector or the sort of social change sector is affected by um, by scarcity mindset. Um, can you say a bit about kind of what you what you mean by that and why you think it affects so many donors and funders? Yeah, so the scarcity mindset is the belief that there's not enough. There's not enough money, there's not enough power, influence, people, resources to create the social change you envision. And this affects both the nonprofit leaders, the activists, those that are on the ground working for a better world, and those that are funding it. So it, it, it seems um, you know, wrong to think that those that have the checkbooks, that are writing the checks, are themselves suffering from a scarcity mindset, but I truly believe that they are. Um, funders hold themselves back and hold the, the, the change that they want to see back um, by thinking there's just not enough. They don't have enough uh, to give away. They don't know enough to, to give it away in certain ways, et cetera. Um, so I think there's a real opportunity to move away from that scarcity mindset and embrace an abundance mindset, which is the idea that there is more than enough. There is plenty of everything that we need to create the social change that we want. We just have to move towards that. Um, and do you think that's uh, something that that is more likely to become uh, something that can be realised as a result of the pandemic? Because I know lots of conversations in the philanthropy world um, at the moment are about the way in which funders have shifted norms towards things like um giving unrestricted rather than restricted grants or sort of thinking about funding over longer time periods or having more trust-based relationships do you think that well first I guess do you do you, are you optimistic that some of those short-term changes will result in longer-term shifts and do you think those are the kinds of things that might help solve some of the, that problem about the abundance mindset yeah so I absolutely think that we are at an inflection point um, as as a social change sector I think that the pandemic and then all of the things, as I said, that the pandemic has uncovered. So it's not just the pandemic itself, but it's that it has uncovered how, how poorly we treat each other, how poorly we treat the planet. Um, it has put in stark relief these you know, tremendous challenges that we face. And so I am hugely optimistic that 
philanthropy and those that are funded by philanthropy are, are going to seize that moment and are going to understand that this is a completely different world. And we have got to invest differently. We've got to do the work differently. We've got to think about ourselves and value the social change that we want differently. Um, and so I, I believe that that is, is truly going to happen. And I think, as you've said, you, you are starting to see some of these shifts within philanthropy. Um, and so I'm, I'm very encouraged by that, but I believe it's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, certainly more unrestricted gifts is fantastic. Um, an increase in payout levels for foundations is also fantastic, but that's just the very beginning. I believe we're gonna see a fundamental shift in how money moves to social change. And a lot of that, I believe, will be driven by a fundamental reframing of um, this inequality, I think that happens between those that are doing the work and those that are funding the work, this power imbalance between those with money and those that are using the money for social change. I believe that that is gonna be moved to a, a, an equal partnership and that is gonna be fundamental to shift how money flows to social change. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because that that inequality between the, the recipients or those doing the asking and those who have the resources, um, is is obviously there and kind of well documented and, and problematic but it does always strike me that there's you know the different way of thinking about it is you have two different groups of people who essentially want to solve the same social problem and they and they each bring different things to the table and in an ideal world should see each other as as partners and um, what do you think it's going to take to to kind of to be more intentional about building on on uh, some of these shifts that we're seeing is it is it more about the people within the nonprofit world having more confidence that they they should see themselves as equal partners, or is it more about the funders and donors recognizing that they need to view those people, or is it you know mm-hmm. a bit of both? I, I, I certainly think the two go hand in hand, but the argument of my book is that it starts with, um, I believe it starts with the nonprofit leaders first, um, because those that are um, you know not fundamentally disaffected by a system are not going to have the impetus to change that broken system. So, you know, nonprofit leaders are the, are the most affected by the way that money currently flows to social change. And so I believe the impetus is on them to at least get the ball rolling. And the way to do that, and again, this is the, the path that I chart in the book, is to really step into your own power as a leader, to really start to recognize that the work that you do has tremendous value. One of the things that happens in the social change sector is, you know, for lack of a better term, is, is psychological gaslighting, where we tell nonprofit leaders, you're not as valuable as, as for-profit entities, you're not as skilled, you're not as savvy, you don't uh, deserve as much money or investment of time and energy. So we continually devalue that sector when the, the reverse is actually true. These are the folks that are you know, working to create a more equitable world, that are working to create social value for all of us. And that work itself has tremendous value. And so if nonprofit leaders can start to recognize that, if they can start to reclaim that power, if they can start to move from scarcity thinking to this idea of abundance, that I believe is going to create a, you know, just a, a virtuous circle that will start to change the mindset of the funders themselves and the overall system, et cetera. But I think it starts, that change has to start with the individual. Um, And once those individual leaders start to step up and do things quite differently, 
be more confident, treat their funders as partners, equal partners, et cetera. That's where I think that change is going to start. I think that it's really interesting. It goes to something I, I talked um, on the podcast to Phil Buchanan about a while back, where he obviously has a whole thing about the fetishization of the idea that sort of all you need to make nonprofits work better is to make them more businesslike and that being not really the right way to think about things. And it, it struck me in what you were saying there that actually, again, part of it maybe is sort of pushing back on this narrative that the, you know, those from the commercial world or sort of coming into the nonprofit sector are inherently no better because they've been successful in the commercial sphere and actually trying to rebalance it so that they equally recognize the the talents and value of the of the nonprofit leaders i mean in practical terms what what do you think we we need to do to to rebalance that narrative more well so i think we need to start thinking about things much bigger why is it that the Amazons and the Facebooks of the world are so heralded, so, you know, attract so much money, are so um, invested in, and so many social change organizations are, you know, in poverty, you know, using band-aids to to solve these hugely complex and large problems. That, That is just a fundamental imbalance in our society. And so I think, and again, I think the pandemic, um, you're seeing this with the pandemic, you're certainly seeing it after um, the tremendous winter storms. I I live in Texas in the US and last week was just horrific. We almost lost our entire power grid um, because uh, of of things of, of, again, these broken systems. And so we need to really seize this moment and see that we can do things fundamentally differently. We can invest in social change the way that we invest in, you know, these for-profit ventures and, and, and really start to, to, to shift this mindset. Yeah, absolutely. And I, one of the sort of particular well-known elements of the, that imbalance in, in power, it seems to me, between donors um, and, and recipients has been the, the focus that donors and funders often put on the idea of overheads, which is something you, you talk about in the book. Um, and, and maybe as part of that shift towards more core cost funding, we're hopefully getting past that. But why why do you think this fixation on on the idea of nonprofit overheads has become so prevalent? And and you know why is that a problem? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it it stems, and I talk about this in my book. It stems from the history of the social change sector, which uh, you know was born from benevolence movements, um, you know, in past centuries, where it was largely women's work. Women's work was the benevolent work, the social good work, and men's work was the um, the private, you know, for-profit work. And so the the sort of leftovers from the private sector were were given to the benevolent sector. <clears throat> but the idea was that the benevolent sector needed to be controlled. You know, it was women; they didn't really know what they were doing, um, that sort of thing. And and I believe that that the sort of uh, sexist uh, implications of that, that history, that baggage is still prevalent today. We still treat the social change sector, the nonprofits that work in that sector as, you know, they don't really know what they're doing. They need to be more regulated. We need to really control um, how they spend their money. And that's that's the overhead. The idea that, you know, no more than 20% of your, your money should be spent on things like fundraising and administration. 
when in the private sector, there are no such restrictions like that. And so we need to understand that just as in the private sector, the nonprofit sector has, has different business models, but based on you know, what they're trying to accomplish. And we can't put those kinds of restrictions on how money flows. You're just impeding the work of social change when you do that. And so this, this idea of that overhead, it's a myth and it needs, it needs to go away so that again, we can start to see the fundamental, the kind of fundamental change um, that we want that we want to achieve. It's a, it's a really interesting point you make there about the the sort of historical roots of it in you know being gendered. I'd never thought about it like that, but actually, as as a an analogy, the idea of a sort of nineteenth century you know gentleman sending his wife out and giving her an allowance, but being very strict and controlling it does feel quite similar to the power dynamics you sometimes see between funders and nonprofits. So I think that's you know it's a really compelling way of of thinking about it. Um, I just wanted to pick up, you were saying there about kind of the, the different business models that nonprofits might have as well. And, and you know, donors need to have a better understanding of those. And, and one of the things you talk about in the book is about some of the misconceptions over what makes for a sustainable nonprofit. Um, and interesting things like you raise the idea that, you know, actually um, having earned income or trading income doesn't necessarily, you shouldn't be seen as kind of the holy grail, but neither should some of these other things like having unrestricted core cost funding. Can you maybe just say a bit about some of those misunderstandings and why we mm-hmm. need to challenge them? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for a while, um, I think there was a lot of um, shiny object syndrome around earned income in the nonprofit sector that, you know, this would solve <clears throat> sustainability for the sector. But the fact is that nonprofits are not for profits. So, earned income. Um, the sale of goods or services is never going to be the full answer for nonprofits because nonprofits deliver public goods or social goods, which the market could not do. So nonprofits often come in when there's a market failure. And so nonprofits are always going to have to be subsidized in other ways. So that's not to say that earned income can't be part of the solution. It certainly can for some organizations. Makes total sense. Hospitals, museums, schools, absolutely earned, earned income can be part of the part of the picture, but it's going to have to be subsidized by other things, philanthropy, um, government contributions, etc. So the idea that um, that that earned income can can sort of solve everything is it doesn't work. Similarly, unrestricted philanthropic income, which is also a great thing and and could be part of the solution, is not the full solution either, um, because philanthropy only covers a small portion of all the money flowing into the nonprofit social change sector, and so it can never, even if all the philanthropic money was unrestricted, it would not solve nonprofit sustainability either. So the the way to move towards that sustainability is for each organization to really think about what is the social change they're trying to seek, what is a an overall business model, revenue model, to deliver that that fits with their mission and their core competencies and and develop a long-term financing plan for that work. Yeah, absolutely. And it strikes me on on the earned income, one of the really interesting things, you know, not not necessarily in a good way during the pandemic, is a lot of organisations that bought into the idea that having a greater proportion of their income being earned or trading income would make them more financially resilient actually are the ones that have been most affected by the the pandemic and lockdown measures because it's they haven't been able to to do that or they've had to close kind of shops or cafes and and these sorts of things and actually 
maybe we're revisiting some of this received wisdom about what makes for the best kind of um, overall uh, spread of, of income streams as a result of, of what's happened. Um, do, do you do you get any sense that the you know organisations that you're aware of are sort of rethinking what their ideal overall kind of balance of, of income might look like? Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, again, the pandemic has, you know, really made folks take a big step back. And, and, and those that are, you know, really seizing that opportunity are thinking about, you know, what business do we want to be in? What do we ultimately want to accomplish? And how do we create a sustainable business model to be able to do that? Um, so, yeah, I think that that is a, a critical thing to be doing right now. Um, and just I wanted to pick up as well on um, link to what we were saying before about um, the focus on overheads. It always it strikes me that one of the reasons that people and funders end up fixating on overheads might be that there's there's a lack of equivalent metrics or measures that can convince them of the the impact of their donations or what's being achieved with it. So they focus on what's available, and unfortunately, that ends up being you know not very good measures of things like overhead ratios. Um, do do you get a sense that you know that is one of the things driving it? And what can nonprofits do to try and convey the actual value of what they do more effectively, so that people don't end up focusing on those kinds of metrics? Mm -hmm. So one of the tools I talk about in my book is is a theory of change, and um, by that I don't necessarily mean um, what sometimes funders use to sort of throw at organizations develop this very complex theory of change um, that you know that we will consider funding what I mean by theory of change is, is simply the answers to five key strategic questions about your work so it's things like target populations what people or groups are you seeking to benefit or influence activities how are your core competencies employed um, and then most importantly is short and long-term outcomes what change do you hope will result because of your work and that really gets to the social change how are you going to make the world or the communities or whatever it is you're focusing on how are you going to create change there. And so I encourage organizations to, to go through that process to, to, as a board and staff, develop the answers to those that theory of change. And that then becomes the, the sort of the guiding beacon for the organization. It helps you develop your mission and vision statement. Um, it helps you create metrics around those outcomes. What are you ultimately trying to change or accomplish that you can then share with funders um, and share with others using your marketing materials, et cetera. But it also just guides the day-to-day -day work of the organization. When you're faced with opportunities or strategic decisions, you can go back to that theory of change and say, you know, does this fit? Does this move us closer to the outcomes we want to achieve. Um, so I think a theory of change is just absolutely critical and fundamental to social change organizations, both guiding their own work and getting really clear about what they want to attract dependents for, but also then working with funders to help them understand it's not about overhead. It's not about our business model. It's about, are we accomplishing the social change we seek? Yeah, and I think that's a really, it's a really sort of empowering vision of the value of, you know, uh, establishing a theory of change and measures that can help you understand how well you're working towards it, because it strikes me that sort of gives a nonprofit a sense of its purpose and what it's doing. And if they can communicate that to a funder, then that's great. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose what I'm, I was interested in is there's quite a lot of conversation I'm, I'm hearing at the moment in, in the nonprofit world about people pushing back on 
the idea of impact measurement and metrics on the basis that too much of it is is funder directed and actually mm-hmm. it's kind of imposing measures on nonprofits that that actually kind of don't necessarily measure the right things or or make life harder for them do, do you think that 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 is something we need to be wary of and how can we make it how can we flip that so that the nonprofits are empowered to to sort of set the right metrics for them that's exactly what I was saying when I started that by saying, when I talk about a theory of change, I'm not talking about a funder directed theory of change. I'm talking about a theory of change that the nonprofit itself creates. And that very step is empowering because when a nonprofit leadership sits down and says, you know what, we're not going to wait for funders to tell us what to measure or what we need to be accomplishing. Instead, we're going to start by saying, what do we want to accomplish? And how are we going to measure whether we're accomplishing that? And that then puts you in the driver's seat to say, this is what we want funders to invest in. This is what's going to be our guiding principle, not, you know, funders telling us what to do or encouraging mission creep or, you know, all the crazy things that happen um, in the sector. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I was just sort of, I think, wondering kind of how, we empower nonprofits to do that, but as you say, if the first step is just kind of that they take it upon themselves to 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 be the ones that that sort of formulate that theory of change and then present it to the funders, I guess hopefully you would the ideal version is that then the funders would say, yeah, absolutely, we want to invest in in that theory of change as as described. Um, I guess linked to that one one question is around there's a lot of discussion as well about kind of you know power in the sector at the moment and and I guess in this optimistic vision of empowering the nonprofits more through through doing things like setting their own theories of change the 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 reality is it might result in the, a reduction of power in the hands of some donors which is maybe what we're aiming for do you think there are that there might be some donors that that kind of either overtly um, or kind of implicitly resist that because actually, you know, it's quite hard to give away power when you've had it for so long. Sure, absolutely. I think um, I think that it, we're going to see that or are already seeing that shift in power um, through every aspect of our society. Right there, ha- there have been tremendous power imbalances based on gender, based on race, based on wealth throughout all aspects of society. And so I think we are are witnessing, again, the pandemic helped to uncover this, but I think what's going to happen after the pandemic finally leaves us is that we will, having come face to face with that, we as society are, are going to move beyond that. And we are going to um, and, and I think you're already seeing this, um, certainly um, politically in America. I think we're witnessing this and in other aspects as well, economically. Um, there's just a lot of shifts that are happening. Um, and I think it's fundamentally about um, a sort of an unequalization of this power. And I think the same thing is going to happen in the social change sector, certainly for donors that are are in philanthropy because of the power aspect of it, it's it's going to require a shift for them. Um, but I think that that the the majority of philanthropists, again, call me an optimist, but I think the majority of philanthropists are in it because they truly want to create a better world. They just don't understand currently that the way they ways they may be doing that <clears throat> are not contributing to that. Um, one of my colleagues, <clears throat> excuse me. Chris Putnam Walkerly wrote a fantastic book that just came out um, a year ago called Delusional Altruism, where she talks exactly about this idea that philanthropists, you know, fundamentally do want a shift, want want to see things uh, differently, 
but are diluted by this this power imbalance. But but that can change. Yeah, absolutely. And I had Chris on on this very podcast last year actually to talk about her book. So, um, which was yeah, it was really in, interesting to to hear her thoughts on on this. Um, and uh, one thing I wanted to ask you as well is kind of in thinking about some of those power shifts. There's obviously kind of shifting power from funders and donors more towards nonprofits and nonprofit leadership. I guess there's kind of the step beyond that, which um, ties into some interesting trends in the sector, which is about is about shifting power right down to the end recipients. And I'm thinking here of sort of models of things like participatory grant making. Um, is that, you know, do you think that's an interesting area for development and how how much kind of interest and activity have you seen in that kind of thing through your work? Yeah, I think that's fantastic. It's it's absolutely the same principle, right? It, it's that let, let's treat everyone as equal partners in the work, especially those that we're, we're trying to change um, the trajectory for. So, so those, um, in, in going back to my theory of change, those are the target populations. What people or groups are you seeking to benefit or influence? You want those folks to be your equal partners in the work um, as well. And, and so I, I, I do see, see some of this happening um, philanthropically, this, the ideas of participatory grant making. I think um, you mentioned Phil Buchanan, Center for Effective Philanthropy does fantastic research on you know, how some of that um, shifting um, is happening and, and you know, using feedback and things like that um, with the populations that you work with. Um, but I think, again, it's the tip of the iceberg. that Those things are starting to shift. Um, but I, again, am very optimistic that this is all part of some of these fundamental shifts that are happening in society where um, th- those power imbalances are, are, are becoming more equalized. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, I think it's a fascinating area, although, I mean, probably one where there's still more discussion of it than activity, but I, I do see that kind of uh, increasing. So uh, it's a very interesting space to watch. Um, it, it strikes me that across a few of the things that we're talking about here, about, you know, the, the donors uh, kind of focusing on on overheads and, and uh, also kind of needing to have more uh, trust in, in nonprofit leadership, part of it is about the the stories that we tell about what counts as success in philanthropy and kind of conversely what counts as failure because I think it, it seems to me the the model we have of what successful philanthropy is is very much based on the idea of the donor comes in with the idea about what needs doing and they are judged to be successful if they kind of you know apply their money in line with that and and produce measurable outcomes and if they invest in in something or give money to something and it it it's you know it is actually the right thing to do but doesn't work out because these problems are extremely complex and entrenched the worry is that that will be seen as a failure do, do you think we we need to readjust our assessment of what success and failure looks like in philanthropy and and how can we do that oh absolutely and again you know i go back to the the disparities between the nonprofit and the for-profit sector in this this case um you know i think are really stark as well in the for-profit sector you know um failures is talked about all the time and and pivots and, you know, learning from an evolving business model and, um, you know, investing and and shifting when when that needs to happen. Um, Whereas in the nonprofit sector, there's very little room 
given for mistakes or, um, uh, you know, R&D or, you know, learning, continuous improvement, you know, all of those things. And so that, again, is a, is a fundamental shift that I think needs to happen. And, and it, it also, I think, goes to the, um, the prevalence in, you know, I think at least in Western society, this sort of perfectionistic um, approach to things. It, it, we have to be perfect. Um, and that's that's not how we learn. That's not how we grow. Um, and so I think we need to afford the nonprofit sector the very same freedom that we do the for-profit sector to learn and grow and evolve, particularly because, as you've just said, the, the things that the nonprofit sector is trying to accomplish are so much more complex, are so much more entrenched. Um, then, you know, perhaps they are in the for-profit sector when you're, you know, just creating widgets. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. And and it always strikes me as odd, given that one of the, you know, the recurrent arguments given for the importance and the value of philanthropy is, is often that it's innovative and it can sort of do things that government can't and take risks. And it seems to me, actually, in a lot of cases, that doesn't play out as much in practice as it should, precisely because there's actually quite a low risk appetite and people are worried about being perceived as failures when it comes to giving. So they stick to to sort of safer bets. And that's kind of underplaying the potential value of, of philanthropy, um, I would think. Um, I, d- building on that, I was I was going to say, I mean, what at the moment, there's a really interesting point, I think, to to ask questions about what people think of as success in philanthropy because you know the pandemic has, has thrown up all sorts of new challenges and in different places around the world you know governments have been more or less successful in responding to that and in many cases philanthropy has had to you know do new things or fill gaps what's your sense of you know how philanthropy's response to this crisis is likely to be viewed when we look back? Um, I mean, probably particularly in the US, but just kind of more broadly, is it going to be seen to have have had a good crisis, if that's not the, the wrong way of putting it? Um, I don't know. It, it Potentially, it's too soon to tell. Um, I, I guess I um, have not yet seen a fundamental shift in um, philanthropy doing things, you know, differently across the board. Um, And even, you know, some of the places you were just talking about innovation and philanthropy, some of the places that are held up as innovative um, during this period, for example, you know, the Ford Foundation taking loans so that they could um, give out more money um, during the pandemic. To me, that's not innovative. Um, That, you know, that's, that's just sort of, you know, borrowing to be able to do more. What's, what's innovative is, to me, is mission-related investing, putting your entire corpus towards your vision um, uh, for what you want to see as a philanthropist. That is truly, truly innovative. Even though that concept has been around for for quite a long time, we haven't seen philanthropy fundamentally moving um, towards that space. But again, I'm an optimist, and I, you know, I believe in the next 10 years, we are going to see some of those fundamental shifts, those those truly innovative moves by philanthropy. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a really interesting one on the on the question of uh, mission related investment, because I think it's part of a, a wider sense, I get that we are we are contextualizing philanthropy a lot more. And I think the idea that you you could solely focus on the, the giving it away bit without thinking about the where did it where the money come from in the first place? How is it invested? You know, actually, all of those things are entirely interlinked. And I think questions people are asking about, 
you know how foundations invest their assets but also kind of what donors business practices and tax affairs and those sorts of things might have been in the first place and how that kind of affects the overall assessment of their giving there seems to be a lot more focus on that now um and you know i think that's broadly a a good thing if it gives us a kind of more nuanced understanding of, of philanthropy um I, just on that as well, it kind of thinking about that, that's sort of one area in which I think the the increased scrutiny on philanthropy in, in recent years has, has come to light. Um, there's obviously, I mean, in, in the US particularly, but but I think more broadly now, there has been quite a lot of, of scrutiny and critique of philanthropy over the last few years and sort of big, um, you know, kind of big selling books by people like Anand Giridharadas and Rob Reich about, about philanthropy and some of its sort of perceived flaws. Um, for those, I mean, I always think for those of us kind of working in philanthropy and trying to be broadly positive about it, we need to engage with those critiques and understand them. What to you do you think are the kind of the ones that stick most? I mean, when you see these critiques, what do you think? Oh, that's that's actually quite difficult to to answer and, and kind of hits home most. Well, for me, it's uh, the ones that really resonate are the ones that fundamentally sort of at the end of the day are about um, the fault of ego. So when you see, I think, philanthropy going wrong is when, uh, you know, big ego has has gotten involved in the giving. And so when you, you know, often will see those that made a lot of money in the private sector coming into the nonprofit sector and, you know, thinking that they know the best way to invest and they're the experts in this because they made money, you know, in a completely different way um, over in a completely different sector, um, you know, that's, that's a fault of ego. And so to me, the idea, and again, I think Chris Putnam Walkerly talks about this beautifully in her book is, is moving beyond that ego and really getting back in touch with why am I ultimately doing this work? It's not about me or my expertise or any of that. It's that I fundamentally want to see something different in the world. And so I need to leave my ego at the door and, and invest, you know, in fundamentally different ways. Yeah, I, I think, you know, absolutely. I mean, I think ego ego is historically a big uh, problem in philanthropy. And maybe that kind of goes to the the templates that we've sort of established for philanthropy and and it does feel like some of that is maybe breaking down in interesting ways. I mean, I think I think in all sorts of uh, aspects, the the work that Mackenzie Scott's doing is fascinating in that it does it does seem less ego driven, you know, a lot less ego driven than than certainly certainly a lot of the kind of other donors coming out of the tech world um, at the moment. I mean, just thinking about that, you know, have have you been kind of? I mean, I would imagine as everybody in the world of philanthropy has been keeping an eye on that. And, and what have you found interesting about her her approach to giving? Well, so it's so fundamentally interesting to me and, and you know, not, not to, to bring sexism up again or gender actually up again, but women, you know, research says that women fundamentally spend their money differently than men do. Um, it tends to be more um, community-based, um, you know, uh, more supportive of family or community as opposed to self-interest. And, you know, philanthropy, the way women do philanthropy is, is also very different from the way men do philanthropy. And what we're witnessing um, right now is, you know, a, a, obviously a great wealth transfer from generations, from boomers to millennials, but it also at the same time, women are coming in to more wealth, either because they themselves are entrepreneurs and are making their own money or, you know, they're inheriting wealth or whatever it is. But um, the whole world of 
um, women philanthropy is, is really burgeoning. And I think it's, it's extremely exciting simply because I believe just as Mackenzie Scott demonstrated, um, women for the most part, and you know, I'm not, I don't want to overgeneralize obviously, but for the most part are, are probably going to do philanthropy quite fundamentally differently. And that itself could be a huge boon to this power imbalance and, you know, to, to sort of some of these entrenched, um, practices that we have in philanthropy. Yeah, no, I I agree, and I'm I'm always again similarly wary of generalising, particularly because I I'm not myself a woman, so it sort of sounds I don't want to sound uh, patronising, but I, yeah, it is true. I mean, actually, the evidence backs up the fact that women do on a you know on an aggregate level seem to give in quite interestingly different ways um and and as you say maybe you know some of that will play into the kinds of things you talk about in in the book um and it, it brings it just brings me on to another question actually which is you know one of the things that seems to be noted about the way women give is that they tend to be much more cooperative and collaborative and kind of open to to giving in partnership and and that that again is something I've seen or heard a lot of people in the philanthropy world talk about as one of the positives that might be taken out of the pandemic is actually there does seem to be a lot more openness to collaboration and a kind of willingness to put institutional ego aside. Is that something you think you've seen among the nonprofits and, and funders you've worked with? Do you get a sense that people are more open to collaboration at the moment? I do think so. I think, um, and and again, I think the pandemic did help with that. You know, there was the initial sort of shock deer in the headlights um, when the pandemic first hit. But then I, I've witnessed um, over and over again uh, nonprofit leaders, um, you know, taking a step back, getting strategic, and pivoting, pivoting their business model, pivoting delivery. You know, how they're going to deliver um, things virtually as opposed to in person. You know, all of these um, just really fantastic pivots um, that I think is are really exciting um, to, to witness and 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 within that um, really exciting new ways to partner to really kind of break down the walls that nonprofits often kind of exist in these silos to really think about how can we partner um, along you know all kinds of different ways not just those similar organizations that are working you know in our mission area but you know with influencers with policymakers with private sector, government sector, you know, on and on and on. Um, so yeah, I think absolutely the pandemic has, has really created that opportunity um, for organizations. Great. And I, I don't want to end up keeping you too long. It's been absolutely you know, fascinating to talk to you about the book. I just wanted to ask really kind of what's what's next for, for you in terms of kind of building on the ideas in the book and, and anything particularly you've, you know, you've got coming up. Yeah, so I wrote this book really to start a conversation in the sector. Um, you know, this is something I've been witnessing for for many years, and then, as I said, I think the pandemic has really uh, created an opportunity to think about things quite differently. And so, as part of that, you know, I, I want to to help. Um, encourage that conversation. So, you know, I plan to spend the next year or so um, providing events and trainings and things um, uh, to my community and, and, and to others talking on podcasts like this one, et cetera, just about these ideas to really, you know, get this conversation going, which, which I think is really critical right now. Great. Well, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I'll put links to, to the book uh, and um, lots of other things that are relevant to what we've talked about in the show notes. Um, other than that, Nell, just uh, remains to say thanks ever much for finding some time to come on the podcast. It's been a, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, Rodri. I enjoyed it. 
Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Nell for coming on the podcast. It was great to uh, have a chance to meet to her and uh, and chance to talk about the book. If you're interested in what we were discussing, I'll put some links in the show notes to various things. Uh, if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Or if you want stuff that's more on kind of academic writing and, and history of philanthropy in particular, um, at for literacy which is my other twitter feed and do you know interact with me on there if you've got any questions about things that turn up on the podcast um you know by all means uh you know message me uh, on there um i'm pretty active on it and i will probably be unable to resist responding to you um if you uh, prefer email and you want to drop me a line uh, with some ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people i could interview uh give me a, an email at uh, giving thought at cafonline.org other than that just like subscribe tell all your friends about it leave us a nice review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts uh, and i'll see you next time bye